Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm interviewing Larry Jorgensen. Now, for long-time listeners, if that sounds familiar, it's because I've actually interviewed him before. It's the first time I've had a repeat guest, but uh, I wanted to have Larry back on. He's written another book. Um, For those who haven't checked out his previous interview, about a year ago, he wrote several books about the history of Coca-Cola. Super fascinating. Um, You know, kind of the, the teasers are... Coca-Cola stole Santa Claus, and Coca-Cola, does it really have cocaine in it like people thought, or did it ever used to? So many amazing things in that book, but this book that we talked about, really, really fascinating history lesson. I let him kind of talk most of the time, give us the history, but it's about a shipwreck that happened in November of 1926 up in the Great Lakes um, near Copper Harbor, Michigan, up kind of in the up area upper peninsula um this ship had a bunch of uh of chrysler uh cars on it and uh, had wrecked into the bank all these cars had to be taken off the boat the crew had to be saved fascinating story he's going to get all into it how the town of copper harbor kind of came together saved these crew members saved these um, you know, these old 1926 Chryslers, you know, it was kind of in the early days of, of cars at all. What it was at 20, 20, 30 years into cars. And now they've got to get all these out of the, basically the, <laughs> the tundra of, uh, of upper Michigan at that time. So I think you're really going to enjoy this story. Definitely. If you like kind of just history lesson, I'm sure most of you haven't heard of, uh, the city of Bangor. That is the, uh, that's the ship's name that was, uh, was shipwrecked. Um, it was it was a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that I had Larry back on. I really think you're going to enjoy this. Um, we're going to talk, like I said, about the city of Bangor, which is the um, ship. We're going to talk about Copper Harbor. We're going to talk about exactly what happened in 1926. And then also the process of just researching and writing this book. He is so amazing when he comes to just researching these interesting topics that sometimes he goes into these libraries to do research and they hadn't even heard about what he's what he's researching so amazing guy amazing book books called shipwrecked and rescued he's going to tell you all about it and how to catch that book Um, but here is larry jorgensen i'm here today with larry jorgensen again uh you're actually the first person larry that i've talked to a second time so I don't know if you should feel special or not, but I it is a it is a first. So I know we talked last time all about the Coca-Cola Trail. You wrote two really awesome books about that. What's been going on since uh, since those two books and the last time we talked? Well, we've done a shipwreck story, and it is a, an amazing story that I just sort of stumbled into by accident. As it turns out, it is in fact the only shipwreck of its kind ever on the Great Lakes. And uh, the reason I can say that, you know, on the, on the, in the Great Lakes, there are a lot, of, a lot of automobiles on the bottoms of the Great Lakes, okay? Because there were boats that used to haul them. Uh-huh. Uh, there has never been 
any other shipwreck other than this one where the cars were rescued too. Not only the crew, but the cars. And that's what makes it a pretty interesting story. For sure. No, and I want to get all into that for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've been busy in the last year. I think that's, we talked about a year ago. Other than the shipwreck thing, I don't know if that's consumed you, but I just want to know how life's been going in the last year. We, I don't get to talk to people a second time normally, so I just want to kind of hear your, your update beyond this book. Well, it, it's been good. And actually, um, you know, my, my wife sort of said that uh, she lost me for a year because <laughs> I got really addicted to this story. And the more I got researching it, the more I wanted to research it. So um, it was it was a good year of research and finding things that had never been told before. And right now, uh, I'm talking to you from northern Wisconsin, almost upper Michigan. Oh. And, and uh, my wife and I have been able to uh, get into upper Michigan. The boat was the boat. The book was actually released July 9th in Upper Michigan at a lighthouse museum. So we were up there for that. And it's an area, a, a wonderful area to visit in the summertime. But unless you're really in love with a lot of snow, not a good place to go in the wintertime. So uh, we were up there, we enjoyed it. We've had, uh, our health has been good. And, uh, you know, we're blessed to be living a pretty good life. That's awesome. Yeah, my, uh, my fiance is from... Wisconsin, the upper part of Wisconsin. So I know all about, we go to the UP sometimes. What, so are you, what's, what's got you there now? Obviously you said that they were releasing the the boat, which we're going to talk about the shipwreck soon, but have you moved there or is it just like a, a visit or, or you said you're in Wisconsin now? I know well, we it's, it's, you're kind in of a, it's it, Jackson is kind of a combination. The town I'm in right now, Eagle river, Wisconsin, uh -huh. way North. This is where I went to high school. Oh, uh, and so it, it, we have what now has become a little summer home up here. That's so we come up when it gets so hot in Louisiana, it's a good place to escape from. And it's actually because of that that I had discovered this story a year ago. We were up on summer vacation, if you want to call it that. Uh, you know, we're only 50 miles away from the upper Michigan the Upper Peninsula border, uh -huh. and uh, we, we go up there a lot. It's it's pretty country, and uh, you know, um, back in the '60s or '70s, I guess it was uh, when I was in television news in Green Bay. Uh -huh. I used to come up to the Upper Michigan, Upper Peninsula of Michigan, covering news stories, uh -huh. and that's really when I first realized what a unique. Uh, what a unique place it was and sort of got addicted to being here on a, on a regular basis. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I, it, it makes sense. Definitely. If you're, you grew up there, you went to high school there because I can only imagine if you were native to Louisiana and now you're going to go up to Wisconsin and spend even a moment of winter there, that would be the, the shock of your life. I feel like compared to compared to the swamps of Louisiana. I'll tell you though, I I miss Louis. I'll be glad to get back. We're we're, we're going to be back probably by the first of October, mm -hmm. and uh, we've got a a pretty I don't want to say fancy, but a, a comfortable home mm -hmm. on a pretty bayou in Louisiana, and we're far enough up in the state that we don't get those 
those horrible effects from hurricanes. We get minor effects, you know. Mm. Uh, but the, the the people in our area, fantastic people, and you can't beat Louisiana food and music. So you know, we, we get the best of both worlds, guy. You know, absolutely. You're you're living the life, and I want to talk about what's kind of consumed you for the past year, and that is this wreck that you've now written a book about. I mean, I, I've got some individual questions about it, but if you would just kind of introduce us to uh, to the, the shipwreck that happened on, on one of the Great Lakes. Well, what it was, this was 1925. And at that time, a lot of your new cars were being shipped by uh, big boats because you didn't have the highway system and the big trucks in that could haul cars. This particular boat, uh, and it was called the City of Bangor, uh, long story why. But anyhow, it left Detroit in uh, November of 1925 with 240 1926 brand new Chryslers and six whippets. Yeah, the whippet was made in Toledo and somehow they got six of them over to Detroit and got them on that boat. So they were headed to Duluth. That was the destination, Duluth. And uh, as it turns out, they, they got into a bad storm uh, going up through Lake Huron, were able to get in, into Lake Superior, but decided they better seek shore. So they actually, not seek shore, seek shelter. So they, they actually went into the area where, you remember the Edmund Fitzgerald? Mm -hmm. Well, that, that, this place is called Whitefish Bay, and that's where the Edmund Fitzgerald had hoped to go, but didn't make it. Well, they, they went in there, they spent a day, and it looked like things were, you know, kind of getting less concerned. So they took off again, thinking that they would go to Duluth. They got into Lake Superior, and they got uh, near the Keweenaw Peninsula. Now, the Keweenaw Peninsula, that's that that piece of upper Michigan that sticks way north into Lake Superior. And it gets cold up there, cold and nasty. And November is the worst month to be on Lake Superior. But there they were. Well, they get into Lake Superior, they get into a bad storm. In fact, the captain described it as the worst storm he'd ever been in. And the boat uh, gets tossed around they lose the rudder, lose control. It ultimately crashes on a reef. It doesn't sink. This is the key to the story. It is crashed, but it is basically demolished. I mean, it's gashed. It's bad. It's it's junk, you know. But it's high on this reef in the in Lake Superior near Copper Harbor, which that's the the tip of the Keweenaw. So we now have now the story gets pretty serious. We have a boat with 26 crewmen and a captain stranded on a reef. And we're going to try to rescue the crew, first of all. Well, the crew uh, is able to get a lifeboat chopped free from ice. And they, they are able to get to shore. They kind of, you know, uh, back and forth with the lifeboat until they get everybody to shore. Now, where it gets pretty difficult, these, some of these guys are from Detroit. They thought they were going to Duluth. There's actually some of them that are 
poorly dressed for what they're about to meet. Uh, some of them are wearing loafers, you know. So they, they're on shore. Mistake number two, they think that they have gone past Copper Harbor. They think that they are west of Copper Harbor. Well, the truth of the matter is they're east of Copper Harbor. So they get onshore, and there's no communications in that days. Nobody knows where they are, or in fact, if the ship is, has wrecked. But they, they think, okay, we're west of Copper Harbor. Let's, let's start walking east. We'll get to Copper Harbor. Well, that was a mistake. They were already east of Copper Harbor. Mm. And they walked for several hours before they realized the mistake was made. They, they turned around. They made it back to about where the boat, you know, sat offshore. And they proceeded to really get lost. Lost and cold and came very close to freezing to death. Uh, it was only um, a coincidence that another boat had run ashore and had rescued, or had rescued, had, had contacted the uh, Coast Guard rescue guys, and they were they had taken off to rescue this other crew, and that that crew was and that boat was east of of where the banger was. The it was the weather was so bad that when the Coast Guard rescue boat went by the banger, he didn't even see it. Mm -hmm. And uh, he picked up these other crewmen, was headed back, he was going to take them to Copper Harbor, and all of a sudden he sees the boat. So they go in and they he looks at the boat. Well, it's abandoned, obviously. So he continues on, and, and about, you know, 10 minutes later, all of a sudden they spot the crew, and they're, they're in a, a little bay, uh, alongside a bay, and um, they're really in bad shape. They're just the snow, you know, we've got places up there in November, the snow was already four or five feet deep. Mm. Um, so the captain kind of pulls in there and he yells at them. He says, build a fire. I'll come back and rescue you after I get these guys taken to Copper Harbor. So he does, he gets them, he gets them all to Copper Harbor. Now, Copper Harbor in those days was probably maybe three dozen people. Mm -hmm. This was, We're not talking a big town here. So you've got two crews that have basically doubled the population of that little community. What are you going to do with them? Well, the, the first rescued crew, they were in pretty good shape. They, they, they hadn't gone through what the second one had. So the rest of the Coast Guard rescue boat, takes them to the rescue station, which is um, about 15 miles to the west at Eagle Harbor. So now we have the other guys at Copper Harbor, and a family says, we'll take them in. Get them to us. We'll take care of them. And it was only like, a, you know, less than a half a mile from where they were at the dock to this family home. And they almost didn't make it. The, the one son went out to guide them in, and he couldn't understand why they were keep falling down. And so, but they were almost frozen to death. Mm. Um, the home was occupied by the Berg, B-E-R-G-H family. And they, fortunately, Mr. Berg had slaughtered two hogs 
before winter, so they had pork. Okay, and he had a cow that was a pretty good milk producer, and they had chickens. So they had food. The question is, if this is gone, what are we going to do till spring, you know? Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, they get them in, and the first thing the crew does is they just collapse. There's a big wood-burning stove. They collapse around it and begin to literally thaw out, you know. Um, but they're, they're really in bad shape. So, um, what this is, we have a, an interesting connection to an Indiana family. Mm -hmm. um, when I started researching the story, I was able to find the granddaughter of this family that saved the, the, the uh, crewman. And her name is Martha Lance. She lives in Osceola, Indiana. And she actually has a, a kind of a getaway summer home they go to up in uh, the Upper Peninsula. And she agreed to meet me and tell me the, more of the story. And um, it, it's just amazing the things that she revealed about how they were able to, to save the crewmen. And in the book, I, I have her permission to reproduce the, the uh, first mate from the, from the boat, after that, they all finally ended up at the hospital uh, 40 miles away. And little by little, as they recovered, they went back to their individual hometowns. Well, the first mate, when he went back, he sent a late Christmas card to this family, thanking them for saving the lives of all of the crewmen. She found that card, and we have been able to reproduce it in the book. It just when I read that card, you know, it was so personal, and it just you you choked up when you read it. You know, here's the man that the his crew was saved, and he's thanking his family for saving them. So it was, it, and that's the kind of the the help we found in putting the book together. So you know, ultimately, the crew is saved. They get to a hospital, they get there either by sleigh or there, there was a, an individual that had created a snow vehicle. He took an old, like, 1924 car, put skis on the front of it and tracks on the back, and he was able, in fact, he was able to get the doctor up from Lorium uh, to take care of some of the badly uh, hurt ones before even getting some of them down to the hospital. So just again, coincidence and good things happen for the crew. But yeah. you know, Jackson, we still got a boat and it, a boat that's abandoned. It's trashed and it's got two hundred and some cars on it. You know. Yeah. So now, what are we going to do? All right. Well, what one thing I want to ask you too is from the time that this boat crash to the time they were saved how how long was this process or this period that they were out in the cold and in the deep snow well they, they were in the snow for uh over two days hmm. wandering they had no idea where they were and it was only because the coast guard rescue boat saw them and got them into copper harbor and ultimately into shelter um so that was two days, and then they were at uh, this this home for over a week. 
Little by little, they were transported, all of them, to the hospital 40 miles away uh, in Lorium, uh, Upper Peninsula. So they, they had a pretty tough time up there before they even got good medical attention. And, and you know, the story is, you know, little by little, they, they were released from the hospital. There were some that stayed there several months before they were released. And I was told uh, by someone who had interviewed one of the nurses at the hospital before she passed away that uh, there were at least a couple of the crewmen who took a liking to their nurses and decided to settle down and live in the Upper Peninsula. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't been able to track them down, but I would believe it would have happened. You know? That's funny. And I, I'm just thinking of that family, too, that. I mean, they had food, but to feed another 20 people for for over a week, I hope uh, hope the rest of the town helped them out once once that started running dry come January after after all that. Well, once and we get into the story of how we finally get the road open. So that did allow them later to replenish their pantry. But that's part of the car rescue. Yeah. You know, well, so now we got the we got the cars. How we going to rescue the cars? You know. Right. Right. One other thing I want to ask before we get to the cars is how how big is this boat that we're talking about? Obviously, I I know ocean freighters and things like that that carry cars. I assume in a well, two things with it being so long ago, and then also being in the Great Lakes rather than the ocean. I assume it's smaller, but how big is this boat? It, it wasn't small. It was originally built to be an ore carrier. Hmm. And it it did that for like 20 years before the company that was transporting autos bought it and added it to a fleet of 11 that he had. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was substantial. I'll show you how big it was. The year before the accident, it took a load of cars into Chicago. It set at that time a record for a number, it had 500 cars mm. on that ship. And when it got to Chicago, there was a big banner, you know, record-setting ship, and and the mayor was there and the, the police department. And, you know, it was a big deal. But they were big ships. Yeah. What they did when they would convert them, um, they would level the top deck. Normally, you had the holes where you dump iron in or whatever. So they'd level that top deck. And then they would build a lower deck underneath and they'd put in an elevator. So you had cars on top and you had cars on the bottom. 500 cars takes up a lot of space. You know, mm-hmm. Even 240 takes up a lot. So it's a good sized boat. Um, you know, somewhere I've got the measurements, but I, I would, I'd be guessing to tell you right now, but it was big. And it was so big that when it got up on the reef, you know, the weight of the boat just gashed it, and it was so high on the reef that they couldn't get it down. They got a tug in there. They were going to try to salvage the boat at one point, and they couldn't get it down. You know, so it was, it was there was a lot of weight sitting on top of that reef with or without the cars. Yeah. Well, let's – I've been holding you back. So let's uh, let's talk about how they, they rescued these, these cars. I'm glad they focused on the people first, but how did they get the cars later on? Well, you know, Walter Chrysler decided that he wanted to get his cars back. Mm. 
So he hired a salvage company out of Duluth. And they concocted an idea and it worked. Now, the accident was the end of November. They waited until January, the middle of January, and the ice froze around the reef. So what they were able to do at that point is build a ramp from the ice up to the top deck. And little by little, they got the cars off of the ship. At least they got that accomplished and onto the ice that surrounded the reef. But now we still, <laughs> what are you going to do with them, right? Well, at first they thought maybe we could get them to shore and uh, on the ice and we build a road to Copper Harbor. Well, that didn't work. Then somebody said, wait a minute, the ice is strong enough. If we hug the shoreline, we could drive these cars along the shoreline to this little town of Copper Harbor. Sounded like a plan, and it, it did work, but it, a couple of glitches, some of the cars didn't have batteries, okay? And some of them that had batteries, the batteries were dead. So they'd, they'd drive the cars that were possible to drive to Copper Harbor. They'd take out the batteries. They'd go back and get some more. This was a bit of a project, but they finally got all 240 cars and the whippets, the six whippets, to Copper Harbor. So here they are. They, they're sitting in a little farmer's field in Copper Harbor. You've got it's a great picture. I've got a picture in the book of all these cars in this town. Population what thirty six people. You know. Mm. So here they sit. So you know Walter still wants his cars. So they the next step in their plan would get the road plowed from Copper Harbor to Calumet. It's about 40 miles. And they don't plow that road in the wintertime. It, it's not much of a road to start with. So what they do, they get two different highway crews. There's two counties up there. They get both counties involved. They have a snow plow that only works partway because the snow is so deep. They end up bringing in like a turbine type blower plow from Minnesota that was still in development stage, but it worked. And they were plowing literally through snow at some points it was 10 feet or more deep. Mm. To tell you why, that area this past winter, the upper peninsula of Michigan got 300 and some inches of snow. Mm. So, so, you know, 10 feet is, is quite possible. They finally get the road open, Okay. So now we've got 200 and some cars sitting in Copper Harbor. And the idea is if you get them to Calumet, get them on a train, and they'll go back to Detroit. Sounds good, right? Okay. So in the meantime, they've been hauling fuel by sleigh and tank up to Copper Harbor. So they got gas in those cars. Now the plan they're going to pay $5 per person for you to drive that car from Copper Harbor to Calumet. A lot of, a lot of high school boys didn't go to school that day. They made five bucks, you know. But the real interesting thing, and this is where the story takes another turn, you know, you think about it. You're being, you're being paid $5 and you're driving a brand-new Chrysler to Calumet. 
and you start to think, you know, some of the cars didn't make it to Calumet. <laughs> they sort of, you know, disappeared. Not a lot, but I've had, since the book came out, I've had uh, a couple of people call me. They'd say, well, my grandfather drove one of those cars, and he knows for sure old so-and-so kept one, you know, this type yeah. of thing. We did find one. Mm. And the same family in the Keweenaw Peninsula had that car for 69 years, mm. handed it down from one to another in the family. That car ultimately was driven 200,000 miles driving around in the Upper Peninsula. Mm. And today, you can see that car. It's at a lighthouse museum in Eagle Harbor. And when you look at it, they'll show you an ax mark on the car where they cut the ice off of it to get it off the boat, you know. Mm. So what we besides would tell the story of the cars and the crew, we were then able to track down the history of the car. And it, there's a picture in there of the car going through one of the early vehicle inspection sites, you know, the safety sites. And uh, the, the, the uh, Michigan inspector who was there told the man, he said, I've never seen a car in here this old or with this many miles on it, you know. Mm. So, and it's, it, it truly was amazing how that car survived. Now, remember, there were six whippets on there. And I, I guarantee you, all the whippets must have stayed in the peninsula. Why would, you know, Walter Chrysler or his insurance company pay to bring back somebody else's cars, you know? Mm -hmm. We found two of them. There's a picture of one in the book. It's, it's under a shed that was falling down, and we were able to track it at least to the point where it was finally sold again. We also talked to a, a woman who is with the Historical Society up there that many, many decades ago, she bought a whippet at an estate sale. And she drove it for quite a while. And she said, yeah. And she showed me a picture. It was a whippet. So we know for sure two of the six and probably the other four were around the peninsula for a while. The other four probably just got trashed, you know, finally. Mm. But uh, so it's interesting. But you know what, Jackson, we still got a boat sitting on a on a reef. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's empty. It's got no crew. It's got no cars. But it's lodged up on this reef. And as, as hard as they tried to, they brought in a tug, they tried to get it off. They were going to reef float it, use it for a salvage barge. It just sat there. It became a, almost a tourist attraction. People would walk out, oh, there's the boat, you know, take pictures. Finally, World War II, we need steel. And a salvage company said, we're going to get it. And they went out there with torches and equipment, and they cut that boat right down to the waterline and salvaged the steel. In the book, there's a couple pictures of the steel being dragged away and so forth. But that wasn't the end of the salvage. There was also, I call it the Midnight Salvage Company, a couple guys who had been working in the woods cutting down trees said, you know, we can make more money if we can get some of that steel than cutting down these trees. Mm. 
So they concocted, uh, you'll see the picture of the book, this unusual high-wheeled truck with a big winch on the back of it. And they went out there and literally dragged what was left of it out of the water and cashed it in for you know, some pretty good steel money in those days. So, mm. so, but it took 18 years to finally get that boat piece at a time off the reef. So it's, you know, the story is just, it goes in so many directions, Jackson. It's an amazing story. It is. And, and just, you know, between paying everybody $5 to, to drive it, having to get all these people involved in, in plowing 40 miles, all of these cars having the issues that they did. I just feel like that sounds so expensive. I feel like we're probably still paying 50 cents a, on our Chryslers for, for what they had to pay with all this. That's crazy. Well, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, it's kind of my ending to the book. I make reference to, you hear the saying, it takes a village. Well, you know what? It took a peninsula. Mm. How many hundred people, one way or another, were affected by this one shipwreck mm. off the off the peninsula on a reef? I mean, you had you know people that drove the cars, people that saved the crew, people that were on the on the uh, the snowplow crews. You know, it's just it was it took a peninsula. Yeah, that's that's. Crazy. And you, and we're talking about, too, all of the, I mean, you're talking about how you found this person and then you found the cars. I just wonder what goes into this research. Obviously, a lot of people, definitely in podcasting, they find all their information. They go dig deep on the Internet on someone else's research. You, I, I mean, even with the Coca-Cola stuff we talked about, you do all this stuff yourself. You do the legwork yourself. How do you go about doing this? How do you go and find the granddaughter of somebody who, um, you know, took people in? How do you go about finding these cars? What I, I don't even know how. I mean, what's that? What's that process like? Well, we were lucky in finding the, the granddaughter because she had posted. There's a a, a special Facebook page that Youpers, that, you know, someone that lives in the Upper Peninsula is a Youper. Uh, mm -hmm that youpers will post little messages on. And she had just posted a little message about how her grandparents had been involved in this rescue. You know, and the interesting thing is that it's, I don't want to say it's a secret, but it's not on any of the shipwreck maps. I looked at them all. It, you know, you have to really dig to find somebody that even knows about it. I found her. I tracked her down, and she was in, she still is in Indiana, but it was just stumbling into something on the Internet. I went to um, archives, and to show you what a, a, an unknown shipwreck story this is, I went to the, the first place I went in looking for information was to the archives at, at Michigan Tech University. Now, Michigan Tech is at Houghton, which is 40 miles south of where this happened. And the first person I talked to in the archives at Tech had never heard of this, had never heard of the wreck. Hmm. Fortunately, there was somebody else in the archives that had, and they were able to get me a few newspaper articles and a couple pictures. But 
again, it was just digging. You, you, you went to, you know, I went to uh, historical sites. I went to different societies. I ran ads in the newspaper. You know, mm -hmm. you just keep digging, you know, and something will come up. And little by little, we were able to get in the book, there's some fantastic photos of the rescue of the cars. And the reason we were able to get those, the Coast Guard rescue captain was an amateur photographer. So he had a heyday making, taking pictures. And fortunately, his granddaughter was able to keep those pictures and to share them. They're in the museum up there. And I was able to get access to many of them. So it made a big difference in the, in the making of the book. And again, it was, you know, I was able to uh, interview a person who had interviewed before the, these uh, people passed on, crew members. Mm. And he had kept some pretty good notes of those interviews. So a lot of the comments that are made by crew members in the book, these are secondhand from an interview that went to someone that I interviewed. Mm. Uh, and it's just, it's finding those people and, and uh, getting the stories and getting some pictures, you know, and the one picture, it drives me crazy. It's the Holy Grail, okay? <laughs> uh, when they got the cars to Calumet and they're going to load them on the train, the, the newspaper in Calumet, which there is none anymore, but they had done two articles, which I got, that said the cars are coming, the cars are here, they're going to be loaded. There's a special crew from Detroit going to load them. All the details on these old newspaper articles. Do you think somebody from that newspaper would have gone over and taken a picture of a car on a train? It doesn't, it, <laughs> I, went, I searched and so I even went to railroad historical societies and museums thinking maybe somebody there would have the picture. My only hope is now that the book is out, and it's only been out for six weeks, that somebody will, will read the book and will say, Grandpa drove one of those cars, and in our family album, we've got a picture of Grandpa by one of the cars on the train. Mm -hmm. Maybe that picture is yet to come, and if it does, it'll be in the next printing of the book for sure. There you go. Now that's that's cool for sure. And I feel like this is going to be a tough question, but we obviously talked before all about the history of Coca-Cola. I feel like it's kind of just your your brand to go and, and do this dig, deep digging. Which project did you find the most enjoyable to research? I'm sure that's tough to kind of picking a baby, but but which one yeah. was more enjoyable? Well, right now, of course, you know, it's all fresh in my mind and I'm getting so much response. Yeah. It, the book's only been out six, seven weeks mm -hmm. and I've had great media interviews, just like with you. Uh, we've been going to events, you know, uh, I'm going to be in Calumet on Saturday for the fabulous Pasty Festival. Now, you have to be from Michigan to know what a pasty is, but it's a wonderful treat, okay? Uh, and and the, the, the people up there, the stores, you know, have just, they have purchased a lot of the books for me. Mm. And it, it gives, it, I've had people come up to me and say, 
finally, somebody put all this together. You know, they're like thanking me for doing it. So obviously there's a feeling, you know, painters paint, writers write. You hope somebody pays attention to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So that's the reward. Hopefully there's a little cash return too. But, you know, the, the Coca-Cola book, that was magic. That book to this day is still being requested by a lot of people. By It's being reordered by memorabilia stores, by Coca-Cola places. Mm -hmm. that, that book will live forever. I mean, I still get, you know, people want to talk to you. I had a, you talk about your, your interview, I had a person from Dubai send me an email and say, would you interview on my station? We have the biggest radio station in Dubai. I, so I emailed him back and I said, I'll be glad to, but uh, what do you know about Coca-Cola? Why? Why are you asking me? He said, our soccer stadium is the Coca-Cola stadium. Okay. <laughs> and everybody over here drinks Coca-Cola. Yeah. The magic... Jackson, the magic of that word Coca-Cola has taken me all over. So you never know. You start out to do a little story and you end up with something that impacts your life forever. And yeah. it, that's a reward. That's a bigger reward than, than the money made in selling the books. Absolutely. I, I, I remember the passion you had with that. And both the books that you wrote, one Coca-Cola are great. I I, you were nice enough to send those to me. I've read them both, enjoyed them immensely. So I, I know the passion behind it is, is felt by the people who's, who's reading them too. Uh, I'm sure that this book is, is awesome too. Um, I, you know, you talked before, I think you talked before we started uh, about you telling your wife and, and you kind of just being immersed in this. So given, you know, you talked about painters paint, farmers farm, writers write, what does she think when she sees you start getting attached to a new topic and all of a sudden she realizes that you're about ready to go off and start researching heavy on these things? Is she like, oh, no, not again? Or or is she egging you on? I mean, I assume she's been dealing with this for a while. Most of the listeners can't hear, but I mean, you're not necessarily uh, fresh out of college. I'll say that. Yeah, well, and, and she, bless her heart, I mean, she's very encouraging of my work, and I make a point to keep her involved in the story as it develops. Mm -hmm. And actually, I can go to her and I can say, Shirley, what do you think? This is what I found. What do you think? Where, where will this fit in the story? Mm -hmm. You know, so she, she's a big help. I can bounce ideas off of her and, you know, get, get some good feedback before we even go to print with the thing. Hmm. So, fortunately, she's she's a, a a silent team member, you know, and been a great asset to let me do my crazy things that I do. No, that's awesome. I like to I like to hear that for sure. How can people How can people find this book? Well, the we have created a website for the book, and it's simply shipwreckedandrescued.com. And uh, it's there. And in fact, today I had four people who had gone to the, the site who have sent me an order for books. And then I had one from Arizona. I had two from Michigan and one from Tennessee. Mm. You know? So, I mean, and you know what's interesting, Jackson? It's not just people interested in the Great Lakes or shipwrecks. 
I'm getting car collectors mm. because of the uniqueness of the car. Uh, there's a, an automobile, an antique automobile museum in Iowa. He contacted me and ordered eight books. He said, my people that visit my museum are going to love this story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where are we going with it? Again, it's a surprise to me, uh, a, a pleasant surprise to find so many different people that find something of interest in this book. Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. And I, I just wonder, we talked about the two that were, stayed on the peninsula. I don't know the record keeping then and whether they had, I don't know that they had VIN numbers. Or they had any identification numbers. Do we know where any of the other ones that did make their way back to Detroit, whether they're in a museum now or whether there's any left somewhere other than those two in the peninsula? I, they did have numbers. Uh, and in fact, the uh, fellow who is the maritime uh, director at the museum where the car is actually had someone from Chrysler, what it's Fiat Chrysler, whatever it is, come up to the museum and verify that that, in fact, was the number, that's the car. Um, my only hope is that maybe somebody, now that the book is out and you and I are talking, somebody will say, I've got one of those. Mm. You know, I mean, the, 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 the one car we found, when the guy that bought it, he didn't know until the dealer told him that, yeah, that car stayed here on the peninsula, and I can sell it to you. It came off the boat. See, what happened, there were two cars that we know for sure went to this dealer. One was the one that, that now exists in the museum. There was another one, and there's a picture in the book, that was so badly damaged that it was hauled in by slave. And Chrysler sold it to this dealer for $25. So, so he had that for parts, and he also had this other car uh, that he was able to sell to the, the people that, that kept it in the family for years. You know? Hey, the neat thing about the, the people that, that had the car initially, it was one brother, he died, it then went to his brother. Both of the brothers had been on the highway crews plowing the roads open to get the cars down, you know, again, a peninsula. I mean, there's not a lot of people, especially in 1925 on the Keweenaw Peninsula. So I would say, you know, what, a fourth, a fourth of the population was involved in this particular project. No, that's that's really cool for sure. I, I, love, <laughs> I love the story. I mean, I've got to ask, obviously, this is fresh in your mind. This is kind of what you're focusing on now. But I mean, do you, do you see yourself heading back into another direction? And are we going to be talking in another year about another another book? Yeah, I've got a couple ideas, and uh, I'll have to go back and sort them out. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we talked the last time about a book I had done about a almost ghost town in Louisiana. I think you briefly mentioned it, but we were very focused on Coca-Cola, yeah. so you didn't really say much about it. Well, it, I kind of did it, it. I felt it needed to be done. It was like a hot springs. It was called Hot Wells. It was a health resort town that grew up, that boomed, and then for a lot of reasons, it just almost 
completely faded away. It was almost a ghost town. Well, I learned while I was up here. See, for a while, the state kept the property. They finally, a few years ago, declared it uh, surplus, set it out for auction. And a real estate person bought a big chunk of it. I asked him when he bought it, I said, what are you going to do with it? He said, I have no idea, but it was too good a, a deal to pass up. Hmm. Well, I just learned that about three, four weeks ago, a big portion of what he had, which included the major resort site, was sold. And there's an individual that's developing an attraction, primarily an RV park, but an attraction that takes advantage of the name of the water and they're going to try to reuse the water to some degree. And I actually called him from up here. He's down in Louisiana. And I told him who I was and he said, Oh, I know you. He said, I've read your book twice. Hmm. And I said, tell me what you're doing. Well, they have a major project going on. What I, I promised him when I get back, we're going to take a look at it. And we may bring that ghost back to life again in another book. Hmm. If we don't do that one, I've got a Northwoods one I'm playing with. You know, up here, they have this thing now called vintage snowmobiles. They race vintage snowmobiles. Just like they, you know, in automobile racing, now there's a lot of vintage auto racing. Well, I've got one that I call, I'm thinking about, that I call real vintage snow vehicles. Hmm. Because one of those, in fact, is in my book about the rescue at Copper Harbor. That was a snow vehicle, mm -hmm. okay? And it was before all this snowmobile stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I also know of one that was made not too far from where I am that was powered by an airplane propeller and was way before the days of snowmobiles as we know them now. Well, in doing just some basic research on that idea, and it's, it, it would be called something like the real vintage snowmobiles, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I found that Studebaker made one. And it is the goofiest looking thing you ever saw. Mm -hmm. I've got a picture of it. I have contacted the Studebaker archives. They're trying to find out information for me. I may go in that direction, Jackson. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I've had a lot of people bring me a lot of ideas. And I guess those are the, the current ones. So we'll talk in a year. I love it. I mean, I'm excited for it. Well, I've, I've appreciated your time. I, I mean, I, I knew that once I saw you back on the website with a new book and a new story that I had to, had to speak with you. I, I loved the whole conversation about Coca-Cola and them, you know, kind of the tagline, the jumping point of that. And the thing that people have, have said to me about that interview was they found it so fascinating. The whole Coca-Cola kind of stole Santa Claus, so to speak. Um, and people who want to know a little bit more about that, obviously go check out that other interview, but it's always fascinating to speak with you. So I really appreciate your time today. Well, I appreciate the time being here and the chance, of course, to, you know what they say, everybody thinks their baby is the prettiest, but I, I think I got a pretty good baby here so <laughs> and had a chance to talk about it. So I, I appreciate it and we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. So that was Larry Jorgensen, amazing guy, such a fascinating story. I think if you're at all interested in, in anything history, certainly something that you probably have never heard of, I, I'm sure you enjoyed that uh, 
But Larry, I, I'm always just, I'm, I'm fascinated by him. I'm just so enamored by the way that he's he does this research and he, he's able to find people that were you know, actually involved in, in the, uh, the things that he's talking about. So if you're at all interested in picking up the book, I have it here myself. Great read. Go check it out. He told you how to find it. Um, as easy as shipwreckedandrescue.com. You can go find it there. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to go pick that up. I don't think that you will uh, regret it at all. If uh, you think, man, that story was quick. I'm sure there's other parts to it. There certainly is. So go uh, go pick it up. Find out a little bit more details on, on the whole thing. But I, uh, I'm fascinated by Larry, like I said. I hope to see him again. Maybe he can be a, the first third-time guest when he talks about whether it's what was it snow snow uh vehicles whether it's uh a lot of different things so i'm uh, i'm i'm fascinated to see what he comes up with next and uh go check him out um i do want to uh i guess tell y'all this is this is after episode 104 the contest is over i have reached out to the winner so if you uh if you got an email then uh congratulations um you know next week i'll I'll let you know whether that person has responded they not have not yet so i'll let you know if they responded and the contest is officially over if not then you know obviously we'll have to uh we'll have to go to the next winner um but i do appreciate everyone who did uh you enter so happy about that i'm so happy that you've uh, decided to stay with me for 105 episodes now you know that contest was for the 100th episode um been a a pleasure so yeah go check out the book go check out larry of course go follow us on instagram not enough podcast on facebook not enough with jackson huff jacksonhuff.com go give us that five-star review on apple and on spotify write a review on apple that's always awesome but yeah appreciate you being here we'll catch you next time take it away chris this has been not in a huff with jackson huff thank you for listening be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or hey maybe even both but until then keep being awesome